Our uh, passage this morning is <coughs> Romans chapter 15, verses 23 through 33. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, and that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word that you have given us that we might know you and that we might know how to, to please you. And Father, we just pray now for Wayne that your Holy Spirit would, would speak to him. We pray that the Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and that we might be obedient to your word. Thank you, Father, for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last time that I came to CBC, it was in 2020, I spoke at the men's retreat and the theme was trusting God in changing times. And the week after, everything shut down with COVID. <laughs> so I was tempted today to preach on trusting God in unchanging and boring times and hoping that we could just have some, uh, some normalcy. Okay, for uh, our passage today in Romans 15, when I was preparing this, one of the things that, that my mind went to was a trip that I made in 2004. In 2004, I proposed to Hillary. We got engaged, and then I was still in seminary, and I went and did my internship in Australia. So I was on the other side of the world, and it, it stunk being away from Hillary. Now, the, the internship was great. I loved it, an incredible experience. But being away from Hillary was really hard. We had just gotten engaged, and we had always done the long-term dating thing, but being that far apart was so difficult. And so in December of 2004, I was flying back and landing in Chicago, and Hillary was going to pick me up. Now, I love the city of Chicago. 
And if someone had come to me and said, Wayne, there's deep dish pizza, pizza here. Let's, before you go see Hillary, let's go get some pizza. I love pizza. Nope, I would have said no. Wayne, you love going to baseball games. The Cubs, I've got great seats. Let's go. I'll even buy your food, right? That's $30 right there. Let's go see a game. No, I'm going to see Hillary. If somebody had said, Wayne, there's museums. There's so much to see here in Chicago. You love all this. No, I was landing in Chicago and I was going to see Hillary. There was no way there was anything else that was more important than me seeing my fiance. And I think many of us can relate to something where we have a focus and we say, I am not going to be distracted. Well, this passage this morning, I have titled the sermon, Paul's Intentional Detour, because we're going to look at and find something, a focus that Paul has, and yet he is going to take a detour. And it's going to be a little surprising given the way he talks about what his focus is. And what I want us to look at this morning is why, what is it that could have led Paul to look at what may seem to you and me as a detour, but to him was perfectly in line with what he was doing. Uh, And so I want to look at the passage, and we're going to look at three things in this passage. Number one, Paul's focus. Secondly, we're going to look at Paul's intentional detour. And then we're going to look at Paul's confidence. Paul's focus, Paul's intentional detour, and Paul's confidence. If you look in verse 22... Paul makes this statement, now there is no more place for me to work in these regions. I still remember 20 years ago hearing John Piper preach on this passage and drawing attention to that phrase, what in the world does Paul mean by saying there's no place left for him to work? Had that area in the first century been completely saturated with the gospel Was there no work left to do? Was there nobody else left to share the gospel with? What in the world does he mean there's no place left for him to do? And one of the things that Paul is getting at is is something that he's been talking about in the verses prior to the passage we read this morning. Paul is saying, my goal is to go where there is no foundation. I want to go where Christ has not been preached. He's not saying that for somebody to stay behind and work in a specific area is not valuable, is not uh, glorifying to God, but he says, my goal is to continue to go somewhere new, continue to go where Christ has not been planted. Uh, And this makes sense to me. I remember listening to a podcast, Tim Keller was talking about how there are some people who are great at planting a church, and they're not always the best people to sustain the church. Sometimes they they do everything and they have a hard time handing things off and vice versa. Sometimes the people who are great at taking an established church and help it function and run well, they're not necessarily good at going somewhere and starting something new. And so we see in this passage that goes back to the section before this, Paul has a focus. I am more of the planter type, not someone who's going to stick around and continue to develop and help it to grow. I want to go where Christ has not been preached. And if you read this passage, it comes across that this is clear. This is Paul's focus. This is what he does. 
So the question is, is he, he then talks about, I've been longing for many years to visit you. Well, why? If you want to go to Spain, verse 24, why do you want to go to Rome first? Your focus is Spain. Why go to Rome? And then we see this two things that come out. Uh, one, I, he, he talks about having you assist me after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So Hillary and I, I can strong, we can strongly relate after I have enjoyed your company for a while. When we were in Senegal, there were some people who had uh, raised support and then other people who they just had a lot of their needs met by an organization. And I remember talking to some people who had their needs met by the organization. And when they talked about going back to the United States, sometimes it was, well, we go to the churches that our denomination assigns to us. And I remember thinking how uh, odd that sounded to me. Because for me, it was, no, we're going back to churches where we know people and we have connections and we have uh, relationship with them. We have memories together. And I can very much relate to Paul saying, I want to enjoy your company. This is a vital part of what I'm doing. This is why I'm going to stop in Rome first. And when you read Romans 16, there's a long list of people that Paul knew at Rome, at the church there. He was very much looking forward to that and to be energized. And we also see this idea of, I want to be helped on my way. Uh, Paul was looking for some very practical assistance, uh, likely some financial assistance. In I need to go to Spain, I need some practical uh, help in getting on there. So this is why, even though his focus is Spain, he's stopping in Rome. And I think this makes sense to me. One of the interesting things that we see from this, and having been involved in work in, in, in the global church and being worked, involved in work in different parts uh, of, of the world, one of the interesting things that I see in this passage is a term that gets thrown around today, polycentric mission. Uh, and what that means is with the Christianity, there is not one center. Uh, Lamin Sane is a Gambian theologian, just passed away a couple years ago. He has written a lot about some of the differences with Islam and Christianity. And one of the things that he talks about is within Islam, there is a clear center. Mecca is the center. And everyone, when they pray, they, they point to that direction. There is a clear language, Arabic, that points back to a region of the world. And one of the things that we see in this passage is Jerusalem is not the fixed center. Paul is moving somewhere else, and he's looking at Rome being another one of these new launching points. And I bring this up because as we continue in this passage, we're seeing this idea of multiple sites of Christianity, and there's not one center that everyone is looking back towards. The church at Rome had a lot of younger believers. We're going to, again, explore this a little bit more. In Acts 18, a lot of the Jews in Rome, many of whom were probably leaders at the church in Rome, got kicked out. So we have this situation. There's this church in Rome, probably some young leaders, people new in the faith. And Paul is saying, I am looking to you, and you are potentially going to be a new base. This is a key point. Uh, there is... In a lot of global mission circles, there's often been this concept of the three self. 
churches that are self-sustaining, self-governing, self-propagating. They're sharing the, the gospel. That is a very common thing to say. It is often easier said than done. To be able to hand over authority and say, okay, we have begun, we've started something, but we're willing to hand it over and view you as now you are a new site, a new place where mission work will go out from you. And we're not going to hold the controls over it. We're not going to control everything. This is a great, a brilliant idea. It's easier said than done. And, and I think it's interesting that Paul does this. Uh, he is willing to see the church in Rome be a new launching point. Uh, and so this is very much in line with Paul's focus. In verses 22 and 24, it is clear Paul has a focus. I want to go to Spain. I want to take the gospel where it's not been preached before. And it's clear to me that stopping in Rome helps. I'll be refreshed. I'll be energized being with you. And I'll get some practical assistance in seeing you become a new sending point. This is what makes verse 25 so jolting. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem. Why? That's the wrong direction. If I leave here today and tell you my goal is to go see Hillary in Memphis, and I start out on 20 West, you're going to say, whoa, whoa, whoa wait, wait. That, no, you, you, need, you need to go east. You're going the wrong direction, man. What are you doing? Why is Paul going to Jerusalem? This, this seems to be the wrong idea. And I want us to look into what both what Paul is doing and why he is doing this. Given his focus, he has just spent several verses emphasizing, I go where Christ is not preached, where there is no foundation. Why go the opposite direction? Let's look at what he's doing. Uh, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. There is this contribution, this collection that Paul is taking up from mostly Gentile churches to go back to Jerusalem. And by the way, this is not a minor part of Paul's life. This is something that takes a huge chunk of his life and I can guarantee you there were churches who heard, oh, Paul's coming to preach this Sunday. You know what? He's going to be asking for money for Jerusalem again because he's been doing this. You can look in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 16. He's like, hey, when I'm coming, I want you to set aside uh, an offering. This is not a minor point for Paul. He's going to all these churches to collect money to take it back to Jerusalem. And uh, one of the things uh, was just a uh, conversation. Uh, Bob mentioned this this past week. And, and I know in my, my experience, I have grown up in a, uh, in a church where if someone spoke, and there, there would often be this conversation of if there's an honorarium, hey, we want to fellowship with you. And growing up, I always thought, this is, this is kind of odd language. What do you mean you're giving an honorarium? Why are you calling it fellowship? Well, what's interesting here is that's exactly what Paul calls it. In verse 20, 26, uh, 
the word there to make a contribution is actually the word that's often translated fellowship. This is exactly the concept. If you look in, uh, I remember a conversation Tom pointed this out, in Philippians, it's the same language. I pray that I'll have some fellowship with you, and it's a very concrete helping of one another. Uh, There's also this interesting idea in verse 27. Paul uses this language of, if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. That word there, to share with them their material blessings, is a similar word in verse 16 where Paul calls himself a servant. And in both cases, it's language that's associated with priestly functions. It's associated with this idea of I'm doing the work of a priest both in proclaiming the gospel to Gentiles and it's also this idea, this same word that comes up in verse 27 of taking money back to Jerusalem. So for me, I used to snicker a little bit about this idea of uh, why are we calling it fellowship? Uh, This is fellowship is more about us spending time together. It's about us laughing together, praying for each other. Paul does not have this dichotomy. Uh, It is a very practical idea. There's a uh, a very, very good book. Uh, John Barclay has written a book on gift giving in the first century. And one of the things he talks about is so many in the West have this idea of the perfect gift is one in which you give it to somebody and there's nothing expected in return. And there are definitely elements of that that we do see coming out in Paul's description of gift giving. But he talks about in the first century, that's not how most people understood gift giving as I'm giving this to you, but it's totally disconnected from our relationship. And many anthropologists have looked at different cultures in the world. And if you give somebody a gift, in many cultures, that means you're entering into a relationship with them. Now, it's not sort of a, hey, I gave you five bucks, you owe me five bucks. But it very much is the, the, the nature of the relationship. All of these things are tied up together. And we don't just pick them out. And so for Paul, when he's talking about the church in Rome having a relationship with the church in Jerusalem, it, get, it gets down into these details of we are concerned when you are hungry and you don't have food to eat. And this is part of our friendship. Our fellowship together is not just praying for each other. Let's not, uh, it, it's not over-spiritualized. It is deeply connected to that. And Frank Thielman, in his commentary, says, Paul's concern for the poor reminds us that as the church advances through the world with the message of the gospel, it also needs to reach out to the world in compassion for the needy. As in 2 Corinthians, this gift giving should arise from a joyful inner generosity that originates in one's own experience of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about this experience that we have of being needy and receiving is something that should shape us. So when we talk about fellowship, whether it be inside this church or whether it be with other churches, it is not just uh, these overly spiritual things. It involves the nitty-gritty details. When someone is in pain, is in suffering, that motivates us. 
And it's very interesting to me that Paul uses this priestly language. It, it makes me think of in the Old Testament, when Paul is writing to the people of Israel in Exodus 19, he says, you are a kingdom of priests. A priest mediates God's blessing to other people, and that is what you are to be to those outside of Israel. And so there is this emphasis on Paul expects the church at Rome to be mediating God's blessing to them in very concrete and practical ways. This is something that comes out. And so we, we see that, that Paul cares about the church in Rome being connected to other believers and being connected for their needs in very spiritual or very concrete physical ways. But this also raises the question, well, well why Jerusalem? There were probably plenty of other churches where they could have helped. What, what is it that this detour back to Jerusalem is so important for Paul? And we see this in verse 27. When he talks about the gift, he says, They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessings. If you read 2 Corinthians 8, Paul will talk about this gift, this collection, this going back to Jerusalem. And he is, uh, draws attention to this gift will bring glory to God. And so here, though, now it's not like Paul is saying this is, doesn't bring glory to God, but he specifically starts talking about ethnicity. Why? Why is Paul saying, you in Rome, I want you to care for your Jewish brothers and sisters? Uh, I think at this point, it's really helpful to remember some of the background to the book of Romans. I've already mentioned, Rome was a church that uh, Jews had been kicked out of Rome pr prior to Paul writing this. In Acts 18, we see this. There were likely... Uh, Jewish leaders who were very prominent, who used to be in leadership, but now they're not. But after a few years, some of them were, were allowed to come back to Rome. So when Paul is writing this letter to Rome, we have a situation of a church that there was originally Jewish leadership who likely were forced out, and now some of them are coming back, and it's primarily Gentile leadership. It's primarily non-Jewish. Paul knows that this is a potential for division. There is a potential for division to happen here. Whenever Paul is writing Romans, I think for, for several years, if someone had said, what's the book of Romans about? I would have maybe described it as, well, it's like a systematic theology. It's Paul's theology about salvation. And I more and more think, while it does teach us a lot about salvation, Paul describe salvation in those first 11 chapters of Romans in a very specific way because he knows what he's going to get to in Romans 15. He knows that there's this potential for Jew-Gentile division, but if I need you to support me in my work to Spain, this isn't going to happen if, if there's fighting. When you read verses 12 through 15 of Romans, what are some of the issues that Paul is raising? 
Issues related to what you should or should not eat. Which day should you worship on? There are potential conflicts between Jew and Gentile. And Paul is saying, hey, this can really derail my focus. If we get off here, this can derail the focus. And so when he describes in the first 11 chapters, notice in in Romans 3, Paul talks about how someone is justified by faith alone. And on multiple times, he brings up this statement, by the way, it's the same for Jews and it's the same for Gentiles. There's no distinction. It's not like Jews get saved one way and Gentiles get saved another. Why is he bringing that up? If there's not a potential division, when Paul gets into what's the role of the law in Romans 7, he's bringing up that issue because he knows there's a potential Jew-Gentile conflict. When he talks about Romans 9 through 11, hey, there's not many Jews coming to Christ. This might lead Gentiles to be arrogant and to think of themselves as superior. Look at us. We got it. Look at that group. They don't get it. Don't you see how they're missing it? And what does Paul do in Romans 11? Hold on a second. Sit down. Do not be arrogant. A major part of what Paul is doing is trying to bring unity to Jew and Gentile. And throughout the book of Romans, this is a part of of why he's he's doing this. And I want to say, why is this so important? And and to be honest, sometimes in mission circles, there has been this idea of, well, we need a church among this group, and we need a church among this group, and we need a church among this group. And some people have raised the question, well, does this group and this group and this group connect at all? Isn't isn't this somewhat of the point of of what's supposed to happen? And I think that's a legitimate, that's a very legitimate question is, uh, yes, they are supposed to work together. Uh, Tom Schreiner, his commentary says, the solidarity of Jews and Gentiles in the collection is fitting for we have already seen in chapter 15, 9 through 12, that God intends Jew and Gentiles to worship together as the new people of God. Paul never intended a a Jewish church separate from a Gentile church. He intended them to work together. And why? I think of an example. Recently, I was at some meetings, and it was people from a lot of different ethnic and racial backgrounds and talking about work that needed to to be done in a particular area. And one of the policies of the organization came up, and we were discussing it. And there was one African-American pastor who was with us who said, Y'all know that policy is a a very white culture. That that clearly comes from white culture. In a lot of our African-American churches, we don't do that. And he brought it up, and there was nothing confrontational or negative about it. Everyone said, you know what? You're kind of right. And and we went on, and there were some other ways in which uh, some of the things that American missionaries had done was critiqued. And, And then I remember a Brazilian lady. He said, hold on a second, you know, I parent my kids differently because of some of the American missionaries who challenged me on certain things. And later on in the conversation, we were talking about, uh, this organization was talking about recruiting. 
And how, do we, how should we do it? What language should we use? This same Brazilian lady said, you know, I remember at one point a lot of American workers heavily emphasized this particular way about presenting gospel work and the importance of it. And I always felt uncomfortable with it because it felt like it was drawing too much attention to the organization and not to God. I left that meeting saying, how much better is this organization for all of the diversity that's present within it? Is this not so much better than one group who likely has so many blind spots but is unable to address it? I think Paul, he is not short-sighted. Whenever he says, my focus is Spain, but by the way, I'm not going on to Spain until I make sure that this potential launching site is connected to the church in Jerusalem. It's not worth me keeping my focus if it's at the expense of unity within God's people. I'm not going to do that. It is too important to continue to doing that. And it's interesting, he does this in two very concrete ways. He doesn't just teach about the importance of Jew and Gentile getting along. He says, I want you to actually do something. I'm going to take up an offering. And he also talks about, we're going to have fellowship with one another. We are going to mutually benefit each other. And when I look at that, I think of, if, if this is going to happen, if there's going to be diversity in God's global church, and we're going to care about going to new places, but also make sure that we care about unity, there's going to have to be not just talking about it, but some very concrete steps. One of the very intentional things that I do, Christopher Wright has a podcast on mission. Uh, he's part of Lang- Langham Partnership. A couple days ago, I was listening to a Brazilian-Korean pastor talking about challenges for the church in Brazil. I need to pray for, I need to think through, is God calling me to help financially in this area? There is a practical way in which God wants us to care for each other and to be connected to each other. I think of this is something that we need to do. Do we care about churches that are outside of Richardson, Texas, and may be different from where we are, may be experiencing different challenges, have different needs. How do we, in very concrete and practical ways, care for each other? I think this is part of what Paul is getting at. A second thing that I think Paul is doing when this intentional detour is he is very concerned that one part of the body of Christ not be looking down on another part of the body of Christ. There is no place for this. There is no place for Jewish arrogance over Gentiles. There is no place for Gentile arrogance over Jews. It is vitally important that as we talk about needs that exist, that we talk about it in a specific way. Here is Paul saying, we're going to help the poor in Jerusalem. But notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, hey, listen, we have all the resources And there's these poor people in Jerusalem that can't do anything, and we have got to come in and save the day. He says, no, hold on a second here. We need to help them. Right now, they are physically in need. But he really belabors the point to say, you better not be sending money thinking that you're better, thinking that you are superior. And I think this is something we really need to do. Where where I live in Memphis... 
Sometimes there will be people that, that want to do something in downtown Memphis where our church is. And, and they describe the neighborhood in a way. And I'm thinking, oh, you're like you realize there are gifted people in this neighborhood now that have some resources. Are there needs? Yes, of course there are needs. And there's things that we can do to help. But let's not talk about it in a way that's going to make us puffed up or arrogant. Whenever we lived in Senegal, I was in theological education in Senegal. I remember some of the, the phrases that we used that I now am, am not comfortable with. I remember a relief project. We want to address theological famine in Africa and raising money for libraries. Now, hey, there's a need to raise money for libraries and Bible colleges in Africa. I was at a Bible college. I can tell you that. I'm not comfortable with the language of theological famine because it suggests that there aren't leaders developing theological resources. The, I also don't use the phrase, oh, the church in Africa is a, a mile wide and an inch deep. Uh, okay, yes, there are challenges for the church in Africa. I have many African pastors and leaders who have lived in America and have made comments similar to the idea of, hey, Wayne, you realize that if we're measuring the depth of the church in America, we don't exactly need a yardstick here. <laughs> there, there are challenges everywhere. And if we talk about need in one place or the other, it is vitally important that we not, that no group is looking down on another group. Paul's detour was intentional. So we see Paul's focus. I want to take the gospel where it's not been named. But I'm not going to do it at the expense of unity. We have to take up this collection. We have to go back and help our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. And we have to do it in a way that doesn't lead us to be arrogant or looking down on anybody. And this leads to the third point, Paul's confidence. One could be tempted to say, Paul, aren't you being a little naive and idealistic? Do you really know about some of the history with Jews and Gentiles? Are you aware of some of the, the, the events that have happened that might suggest that it's better to just not touch this topic? Are you aware of this? Are you naive? Look in verse 30. I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God. Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there. Pray that I may be kept safe. My physical life is in danger. Pray for that. Is Paul naive? No. Paul was fully aware that they were people who wanted him dead and that this detour to Jerusalem had some physical risk involved. Paul was not naive at all. Paul was fully aware of some of the, the challenges that, that get brought up. And yet I'm struck by Paul's response is often different than ours. I've been in conversations where someone talks about we need God's, group, God's word to go to this group of people, but we couldn't send someone from this group of people because they don't like each other. And and yet when I see Paul with Jew and Gentile, Paul wanted to see the gospel grow among Gentiles. And who did he often go to first? He often went to the synagogue. Paul was not naive. He was very deliberate and intentional in saying, we're going to address this topic. We're going to bring, we're going to bring it up and we're not going to ignore this. And the, the question then is, well, how did Paul have this confidence? 
Because you get different ethnic groups together who have historical realities that have created the tensions. This is not an easy thing. Where did Paul's confidence come from? And there's two things in the final verses I want to draw our attention to. One in verse uh, 30, 31. Oh, no, verse 32. His prayer that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The word Paul uses there is a really odd word. It's actually rest together is this concept. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Why is Paul using this really odd word of, I pray that when I come to you, we will rest together. Uh, you know, we're going to take a nap. We're going to we're going to sit down and, and re- what is Paul doing? This word is not found at all in the New Testament, but in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is found in Isaiah 11, where the lion will lay down with the lamb. There's this passage where this word is used that talks about the nations coming to Christ and, and living at peace with each other. And When I think of, well, how do I know Paul intends that with this word? There's two reasons. Number one, I felt like it fit really good with my sermon and I wanted it to be the case. But secondly, is Paul potentially alluding to Isaiah 11 whenever he uses this word? The the probably more significant reason why I would say is he's already quoted Isaiah 11 in the first part of, of Romans 15. He's already quoted this passage in the exact same passage talking about this. Paul has a confidence to tackle this difficult difficult subject because he believes that this is part of God's plan. That when we look at Revelation 7, there's people from every tribe, uh, tongue, language, worshiping together where there's peace. And we see this in in Paul's blessing, verse, verse 33. The God of peace be with you all. The God who gives peace, that's what he's praying for. And that's where his confidence comes in. His confidence is not that, well, I think we'll get along because we're all good people and we'll just figure it out. That's not his confidence. His confidence is this is part of God's plan. It's to not just see people reconciled with God, but to see people reconciled with each other. And there's this promise in Isaiah 11 and in so many chapters about people from so many different groups coming together and all recognizing together our need for the Savior and that none of us has the ability to look down on each other. This is what provides Paul's confidence. And so as I close, I I think about Paul's focus, Paul's intentional detour, and Paul's confidence. And I think back to to my original uh, illustration of uh, wanting to see Hillary. And the truth is, if I'm wanting to apply this some way here, it just doesn't fit. Because everything else, whether we're talking about deep dish pizza, which is great, whether we're talking about a baseball game, which is a lot of fun, or we're talking about museums, which I do love, none of those are on the same level as my wife, all right? But for Paul, one of the things that I think he wants us to see is that God expects us to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Whenever Paul says, I care for the unreached, I care for the poor, I care for unity in the body of Christ, 
He's like, I'm not doing any of this. Let's rank them and do the top two. Paul expects us to be able to look at multiple things. Can we care about evangelism? Can we care about people who have physical needs? Can we care about this diversity that's in the body of Christ and how we're going to figure out how to get along? Paul expects us to walk, God expects us to walk and chew gum at the same time and to not just rank God's commands and pick the top two. I think uh, my prayer for all of us is that we uh, grasp Paul's ability to maintain multiple values together and to recognize the importance of in God's mission, in God's plan, there are so many values that connect together and we need to hold them all together. Father, we are grateful for your word, for the challenge that it gives us. May you give us grace. You are the God of peace. And we long for people to know you. We long for your word to be proclaimed. And we ask that the peace that you provide be, be manifest and present here in this body and that we also live in peace with your believers globally. God, you have called us to this. We thank you for the grace and the strength that comes from you alone. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.